This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 511 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. Their civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts, I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 511 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 511 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. 
And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX gives back. Every month they're gonna sell a different patch and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 398 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Matthew Pollard. Now, Matthew is known as the rapid growth guy in the business world and is also the author of The Introvert's Edge, a book that was recommended by Chad Belger, who's been on the show twice himself. So this was an incredible conversation. We discuss Matthew's own journey through his awkward childhood into discovering his own vision challenges, his own personality type, and how that then factored into his incredible growth and success in the entrepreneurial space. But this also applies to mental health, to overall happiness, to stress. So there was so much to unpack in this conversation. Before we get to the interview, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single rating truly does help elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth, whether individually, whether organizationally. So all I ask in return is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Matthew Pollard. Enjoy. Well, Matthew, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Mate, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm betting I probably don't sound it, but I'm from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Brilliant. Yeah, there's, there sounds like a slight um, Western twang. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm definitely not from North Texas or uh, North, you know, from South Carolina. I'm from, you know, I'm from Melbourne, Australia, actually, originally. I moved out here in, in 2014. Brilliant. All right. Well, I'd love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, so I was born in Melbourne, Australia. So, you know, I spent most of my life there outside a two-year stint when my family went out to Sydney. But, you know, we my family dynamic's really interesting. So actually, even if you went further back, you know, my, grandf- my great-grandfather was a sheep shearer. And, you know, my, um, my, my grandfather on the other side worked in a factory. You know, my mom and dad were, you know, one was a, was a secretary and the other one was the first degree qualified person, but, you know, worked in a, you know, university job uh, at the time when I, you know, when I was younger, you know, really as a, uh, as laboratory assistant. Uh, so, you know, really, really blue collar kind of origins. As a matter of fact, my, my, my mother was one of the smartest kids in her school and had, she, she, the principal of the school actually reached out to her father and said, you know, Robin could do really anything. She could be a doctor. She could be a lawyer. 
Uh, and, you know, in Australia at the time, education was was free. And he said, no, that, that doesn't sound like a, a great career path. No child of mine will do that. You know, she's going to secretarial school where she, she'll earn a, gra- a great income. As a matter of fact, he paid to send her to secretarial school where, you know, doing a degree in med- medicine would have been free. So the the whole the whole family upbringing for me was very blue collar. Though, what actually happened is my mother, as she got older, she really wanted to be involved in more. And you know, when we were young, she actually put herself back through business school. So because of that, you know, I actually grew up listening to concepts around business. You know, like Robert Kiyosaki's uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad. You know, uh, Michael Gerber's E Myth. You know, really around the dinner table when I was younger. And my my father moved from being a laboratory assistant, he got really into quality and, and quality assurance. So if you can imagine a household where around the dinner table at night, my my father was talking about quality, my mother was talking about business, and my sister had one of these crazy memories where she remembered everything. And, you know, I, you know, I had reading disabilities growing up. So one of the things that I became really good at is though I couldn't read, I couldn't, you know, really consume information like a lot of other people. I got really great at synthesizing information. So growing up listening to all the things that came out of their mouths was really interesting because it allowed me to piece together a lot of what, how the world works really from a young age. Now, it's an interesting kind of diagnosis behind your reading challenges. So, so what exactly was happening to you as a young boy? So everybody misdiagnosed. They all said I was dyslexic. So for the longest time, I was taught how to succeed as a dyslexic and got told that the reason why, even though I was really working hard in the background, that I wasn't succeeding is I just wasn't applying myself. I wasn't putting in effort. And it's actually really interesting. It happens all the time. I got diagnosed when I was 16 because my mother just really wouldn't take no for an answer. And she found this comp- this thing that was in the paper, and it was it was talking about this this thing called Erlen syndrome. And Erlen syndrome really means you put on a pair of funny colored lenses. And you know, miraculously, with me, I, I could learn to read. Now, the reason for that is in the color white, there's a spectrum of colors, and my eyes just struggle with the color yellow, which meant that every time I looked at words, the the white ate the the black print in different ways every time depending on the the ink then how how it was inked and because of that i couldn't learn to decode words so basically at the age of 16 i put on this pair of colored lenses it filtered out the yellow light and then all of a sudden i could actually see the words and learn to decode words now that didn't mean that i could you know read like everyone else at the age of 16 but it meant that i could start the process of learning to read so i mean that was i mean a two-year hustle you know through high school to get uh, to get up to speed, and I actually got into the top twenty percent of my state, which was which was great. But you know, I mean, I was pretty beaten down by it, as you can imagine. I was the slow kid, the feeling. Well, I felt like the, the slow kid the whole way through high school, really. And now I'm the kid with the slow kid with funny colored lenses, and I also had bad acne and braces. So you know, it really beat my confidence down a fair bit right through high school. So you were just uh, vying for the uh, prom king spot the whole time, then. Oh yeah, I was. I mean, <laughs> I, I was. There was no question I was going to get that spot. <laughs> it's interesting because I, I was, uh, or I would say I was, I am um, color deficient. They love to use the word color blind, but that, that I was led to believe that I could never do any of the cool jobs. And it was all from that, again, very black and white diagnosis. And it ended up being a deficiency. Like I, I wouldn't be a, a good designer in the fashion industry to tell between navy and, you know, dark brown. But when it came to seeing lights for the fire service, I was absolutely fine. But it's, it's, it's amazing how a misdiagnosis can truly affect someone's life for years and years. 
You know, it's funny though. I like I wouldn't I wouldn't have traded it for anything. And I think a lot of people try and define why they can't succeed by the barriers and the the hurdles and the misdiagnoses. But you know, truly, I mean, I I always say that the adversities in our life see the success of our future. And for me, if I hadn't have had those adversities growing up, I don't think I'd be where I am today. I mean, I remember. I mean, the whole world never worked for me, right? I, I, I couldn't fit in the box. And I think that a lot of people going through an education and having their job, they're like, well, this is just the way it is. I have to accept it because, I mean, the world kind of works for them. I mean, it's not – sometimes it, it doesn't work well for them, but it does work. For me, the world just didn't work. So because of that, I was always around pat peg in a square hole. And because of that, I always had to find ways around things. Like I can tell you in English class – I used to stimulate class discussions or I should say class arguments about the books because I hadn't read the books. So if they all argued about the points of the book, then I would be able to put together enough of what the book was about that I could write my my class assignments. Beautiful. Now, with with storytelling being so important to you now, you not being able to to read, you know, read stories that well. How are you able to immerse yourself in the world of storytelling as, as a child? You know, I, I think I was, I mean, I watched a lot of TV growing up, I think like any kid did. And, you know, I, I, my mother used to say, you know, I actually used to love the commercials as much as I, I liked the shows because of the way they weave narratives in and around commercials. But, you know, I watched, I, I did, I watched a lot of TV, I watched, I watched a lot of movies, and, and that was, was really helpful to, to learn, you know, stories. Character development in, in movies is, you know, is, is amazing. Now, of course, you know, the, the since, you know, for the last 20 years, you know, Audible and technologies like that have, have existed as well, which is hugely powerful. You know, for me, you know, I listen to books and that really is helpful. But growing up when I was young, it, it was really just watching watching television. And and also I, I be from a very young age, I, I think I became very good at learning that if I, you know, I told a story as opposed to explain something, people would listen a little bit more. And as an introvert, you know, I found that, you know, if I, I could actually prepare a story and a narrative, like I'd, I'd tell my parents something over and over again, and then I'd be able to feel comfortable telling the teacher or telling my my, my friends about it. And you, I found that I got better and better when I told something. Very similar, I guess, the, the way somebody would talk about the story of how they met their partner, you know, their, their husband, their wife, their boyfriend or girlfriend. When the first time you tell it, it's kind of awkward and it's bulky and there's certain parts that people don't enjoy. You can see that. So you kind of cut it out. And then over time, you see that there are things that people do enjoy. So you embellish on that a little bit. And eventually it becomes a theatrical masterpiece. And for me, I think even from when I was young, I would I would tell the same story, the same narrative constantly to different people and it would constantly improve. So I always learned that it was possible to perfect things. I mean, I think a lot of people say, I always suck at, you know, just having, you know, an off-the-cuff conversation. And for me, I mean, that was absolutely true. But what I found is that a lot of the things about an off-the-cuff conversation is relatively the same. And I could use the same stories. I mean, I even remember when I was younger, you know, you know, and I was really uncomfortable around girls and things like that. I would I would say a lot of the, the same things because by using the you know, talking about the same things, I could feel more comfortable. Beautiful. Well, what about um, in your childhood? Were you a, a sportsman back then? So I did play quite a fair bit of basketball when I was younger. Um, you know, basketball was always my game. Things like table tennis as well and tennis. Uh, wasn't really into the the foot, uh, AFL football, which was a, a huge thing in Australia. <laughs> I mean, it's another big kick to your popularity if you're not big into AFL and uh, play it every day. But I was a basketball guy. 
Brilliant. All right. Well, then you mentioned about education, you know, um, being surrounded by business and quality control. So when you were at that school age, what were your career aspirations? You know, I actually wanted to, um, to I think I, I from memory, I wanted to be a doctor or something. When I was like super young, I said, you know, I, I wanted to be a doctor. And my sister said she wanted to be a lawyer. And, you know, it was fine. I mean, I was only in like, I'm talking like bubs. I was, I was, I was probably in grade one. And my, my sister, they, they totally bought into that. She was incredibly smart. My parents, on the other hand, got called into school because I, I had to, I had to learn, I had to set more realistic expectations. <laughs> so, but, but as far as your own, um, you know, when, when you graduated from school, had you got your eyes set on any career or were you still like, like a lot of us when we graduate, still kind of figuring out what you wanted to do, especially being told that maybe you didn't fit the mold for some of these higher academic positions? Oh, no, I mean, I, I had no, I mean, in young, in younger life, I, I, I had like basic dreams that I got told were impossible for me. But by the time I got like to the age of 18 in, in, in final year of high school, I mean, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I mean, that last two years was such a struggle for me. I mean, I, I worked so hard. I mean, at the end of year 12, I, I took the year off. You know, my parents and I all agreed that there was no way I was going to survive university unless I knew exactly what I wanted. So we all agreed I was just going to take a year off to sort of find myself for the year. And, you know, I mean, I, I, my backstory is I, t- I took a job at a real estate agency really to, you know, to find myself. I know people probably, you know, from hearing real estate, you go, oh, you're the person out there selling. I wasn't. I was the guy doing data entry in the back office with a look on my face. Really, you know, don't speak to me. I'm here to find myself for the year. But it was, I mean, for me, it was the best option because going to university, I really would have spun out. But, you know, my family weren't well off. You know, my dad broke his back 80 hours a week to support the family. So, you know, it was not like I was going to go travel through Europe for that year and sitting around watching Oprah on TV wasn't really an option for me and my family. So I had to go and get a job and it all seemed like that was going to go well until three weeks into that job. I mean, I lost my job just before Christmas and then found, you know, found my way into commission only sales, which as you can imagine was horrific (laughs) for a kid that really struggled to talk to his own friends. But that's kind of how I ended up there. And that's what led to the the career that I now have. Yeah. So before we get into that, had, at that point, had you had any sort of introspection, and I, I find it highly unlikely for any of us at that age to do this, to what kind of personality type you were? Oh, gosh, no. No, no. I mean, I knew that I was, you know, I, I lived relatively in my head, but I don't think I knew what that meant, really. Um, I knew, I, I mean, I, I thought that I was shy, but then, you know, I felt comfortable speaking up for things I believed in. So that wasn't really shyness, but that's kind of one of the things that I was worried about. I would get nervous. Like, you know, when I think it's every introvert's worst nightmare when they say, we're just going to go around the room and ask everyone what they did for their holidays or things like that. I'd get super anxious and uncomfortable where other people would get super excited to share what they were going to do. But no, I mean, to say I knew what personality type, no, I, I definitely not. I think you know, I had some awareness that, you know, I, I felt like I felt like I was, even though I felt like I was the slow kid a lot of the times growing up, I felt like there were things that I was smarter at. And I, I felt like I was, a you know, an inside thinker a lot, but I, I just, I struggle to communicate. I, I get stuck on my words all the time and, and those sorts of things. But no, thinking I, that I had a personality, I'm not going to say a personality issue because I hate it when people think that introversion is a negative because I actually think it's a huge advantage now that I know it more. But I think if I had found out that I had it then or that I was introverted then, I feel I feel like I would have seen it as a negative. I think a lot of people see it as a negative, but I didn't I didn't know that that was a thing back then at all. Yeah. 
No, well, you just, like I said, before we start recording, I'm looking forward to kind of really exploring the difference between the two and the kind of analysis, you know, self-analysis. But in hindsight, I am an introvert. And after I graduated university, which took me a few years, I did some community college stuff and then went to university and did a sports degree. Um, I came out and it was one of those things where, yeah, I've, I've finished college and it really hasn't, <laughs> hasn't, uh, cemented any kind of goals. And ironically, that discounting from the colorblindness took me away from the profession that I ultimately ended up doing in a different country. But I found myself on the streets of London selling, like, you know, commission only, like you said, stopping people in the street, going into businesses. So I can completely relate to, to your next chapter. So kind of walk me through that. You, you've, you've, uh, You've left school. You've at least understood now the the challenges that you have with reading. Um, you know, how did you go from that kind of blank landscape to the the realization of you know the the storytelling element and how you were so successful in sales? Yeah. So I mean, for me, finding out I lost my job just before Christmas in Australia, and I know for for people in the UK and people in in the US, it's kind of hard to understand that on the other side of the world, it's summer break and Christmas at the same time. Like people go on holidays on the 20th of December and they don't come back till the 15th or 20th of January. So if you think about yourself as a business owner about to go on a month long break, you're not hiring anyone. Right. So I, you know, done some weekend stuff at the real estate agency and, you know, then went into my full time job. And now three weeks in, I'm out of work just before this big, long holiday. And I'm just I'm terrified to tell my father that, you know, that's it. Three weeks in, I'm out of a job and now I'm just going to sit on the couch for a month. So because I mean, he worked. I mean, I remember like he would come and spend like an hour with us for dinner and then he'd go back and work all night. And so his work ethic was amazing. And I just I never wanted to go in and say, no, sorry, I, I can't fulfill my promise of working the whole year that I'm taking off. So I went and picked up the classifieds and I I looked for jobs and there was really nothing there except for these three jobs that were commission only sales roles. Now, I mean, of course that terrified me, but I was, I was kind of chuffed a little bit. You know, I was a little bit excited by the fact that I applied for, for three jobs that were in there and all three of them agreed to interview me. And then I was impressed. Well, kind of blown away that all three of them offered me a job. Now, one of them offered me a business-to-business telecommunications role. The other two were residential sales. So I went with the business-to-business team. And the reason they gave it to me is they, like, I mean, I was the, I mean, it was obvious. The, the only, I was the only person that wore a suit to the interview. Now, it was a terrible looking suit. I mean, we're talking this black suit that shined in the sun, lime green shirt, post office red tie. It was the only suit that I had, though. So that's what I was using. Uh, but they put me in the business-to-business team. And I'm like, well, they clearly saw potential in me. So I, I'm going to go into this training with a little bit of confidence. And, of course, my manager on the first day says, you know, we just hire everyone. We just have this view. We throw mud up against the wall and we see what sticks, which sounds like a fun saying until you realize you're the mud, right? Like, so that's what I was presented with. And after five days product training and not a single second of sales training, I get thrown on this road, which is Sydney Road in Melbourne, Australia. And this is just this long road. It's like a thousand doors on each side. And I just get told to go and sell. Now, of course, I had five days product training, but no one actually told me what to say. And it's just as I go into that the first door, I have this realization. I, I don't even know what to say at the start. So, you know, I take this deep breath and, you know, I, I bumble my way through it. And luckily enough, I was politely told to leave. Shortly after that, I was less politely told to leave than I was sworn at. But my, my personal favorite was people saying to me, why don't you just go get a real job? I mean, this was the only job I could get. And just door after door, this just kept happening over and over again until I got to the 93rd door where I made my first sale. And I remember I made about $70 and I was ecstatic for 
gosh, about 45 seconds until I had my second big realization for the day. You know, I'm going to do this again tomorrow and the next day and the next. And I mean, that just wasn't okay. I wasn't willing to do the the grind like that. And I think this happens a lot. I mean, people just have this mindset of I'm either going to hustle through it, I'm going to grind it out. And entrepreneurs, especially right now, they have that grind it out hustle mindset, which I guess is great. It's definitely better than the just quit mindset, which is what, you know, most of the people in my training group did. Like 18 people didn't, of the 20 in my training group, did not come back the following day. But I decided because the world, and this is what I mean about the adversities in our life, seeing the success of our future, the world had never worked for me. So I went, I'm not willing to just grind it out every day. I've got to find a different path. And for me, I made the decision on that day that sales had to be a system because if not, my year was going to suck. So I went looking for that system. And, you know, I mean, this was back in the days where, I mean, there wasn't a lot available, but, you know, I couldn't exactly pick up a Brian Tracy or a Zig Ziglar book. But what I did discover is the new tool that was becoming, you know, relatively popular in Australia at the time, YouTube. And our internet connection had just gone beyond dial-up so I could watch videos. And I decided to type in the sales system and all these videos came up. And, you know, so what I would do is every day I would go out in the field and I'd practice one of the steps for eight hours. Then I'd go home and I would practice how to do it better for the next eight hours before going to the next step the following day. Weekends, I'd spend 16 hours practicing every day what I was going to do on Monday to better improve my sales, which I'm sure sounds like torture to everyone listening. And it was. I wouldn't wish it on anyone except for the fact that shortly after that, it was like 78 doors and then it was 63 doors and then it was 41 doors and then it was 18 doors and then it was 12 doors, then nine. And eventually I got it down to an average of uh, make a sale on every third door. Well, if we fast forward six weeks, my manager calls me into the office and he's got this puzzled look on his face. And I thought I was in trouble. But, you know, and remember, I was the quiet guy. So I'd hand my paperwork in downstairs and go upstairs, hear all the boisterous salespeople talk about how hard things were getting and how tough the market was getting. And he just looked at me and he said, Matt, we're kind of blown away by this. We just got our national sales figures and it turns out you're the number one salesperson in the company. I mean, this was the largest sales and marketing company in the Southern Hemisphere. They employed thousands of salespeople. And I'd literally gone from the person that was terrified to sell to being the number one at it in that organization. Now, Shortly after that, I mean, well, pretty much the next day, they'd promoted me. They made, you know, I don't know why everyone thinks just because you can sell, you can manage. I mean, they gave me a 20-piece team of my own, which all quit within 24 hours because, of course, I had no idea how to manage, and I'm super reserved. So I went back to YouTube, and I learned how to manage salespeople, and within less than a year, I was promoted like seven times into different positions, and eventually, a year later, I made the decision that I was going to go start my own business. I started up a telecommunications company, an independent brokerage of my own. I mean, fast forward just shy of a decade, I'd been responsible for five multi-million dollar success stories. So I think the, the, the biggest thing for me is, of course, I mean, if I hadn't lost my job just before Christmas, and I hadn't have succeeded in, well, if I had lost my job just before Christmas and then succeeded in learning that sales was a system, I probably would have gone back to a data, I would have stayed in a data entry role and been really happy with that. Maybe not happy, but I probably, maybe I'd have a countdown timer on my phone saying, you know, I get to retire in, you know, 15 years or whatever and slowly counting it down. I'd say, you know, this is just the way life is. But because of that happenstance, you know, I literally have a completely different life today. It's amazing. Well, we'll talk about the countdown timer because that's a conversation we had before we start recording about some of the men and women in our professions that kind of a slave to the 
to the pensions um, without understanding that, yeah, if, if you got to the point where, you know, you're, you're ready to transition out and do something else that, you know, they're completely empowered to do so. But with, with you specifically, you're a young boy, you're coming out, you know, into the workforce. Why, why did the other people in, in the sales force not understand the lessons? How, you know, what was it that you saw through your eyes that was so different than all these professionals that you were working alongside? You know, it's interesting. I think if you were going to say, you know, what the, what would I see differently in, you know, data entry compared to everyone else? Probably nothing because people in business see that everything can be system systemized and, you know, create you can create a process for everything. I mean, a lot of organizations are talking about, you know, creating standard operating procedures for absolutely everything. But then all of a sudden you get to this world of sales and everyone just believes you've got to have this thing called the gift of gab to succeed. So your extroverts out there, well, everybody really, you know, when you make a sale, you're lucky. When you don't make a sale, you've had an unlucky day. And everyone keeps talking about this concept of the numbers game. You just go to more doors. So obviously you've got some people that are a little bit more, they have a more of a gift of a gab. So therefore they don't need to go to as many doors to make more sales. And then unfortunately other people just don't have the gift of gab and therefore they can't get as many sales. And that's just the world we live in at the moment, right? If you were to say, who's going to be a better public speaker, an introvert or an extrovert, everyone would say, Obviously, it's probably going to be the extrovert, except for the fact that people like Zig Ziglar, probably the most well-known sales trainer on the planet, happens to be introverted. If you were to ask who's the best you know, type of networker in the world, well, you might say that probably Ivan Meisen, the founder of BNI, would be that, and he happens to be introverted. Yet if you said, is it introverts or extroverts, you'd say, obviously, an extrovert. So the thing is, we live with this barrier that we put up that says, as an introvert, we do not have this gift of gab, and therefore we have to accept subpar performance. And HR organizations say, oh, that person is an introvert, so therefore they're not going to be the one that you know public speaks. They're not going to be the one that's going to get the high results in sales. We should just accept what they do. Now, for me, I think it was because nothing had ever worked for me, and I was determined to make this work, that I went no, I'm not going to do this hustle grind and just do what everyone did because, gosh, if I had have done that in high school, I would still be diagnosed with dyslexia and being told I was a slow child. So I'm not just going to accept that this is the way it is, but giving up is not something that I would ever do. I, you know, I always have this back up against the wall that I will not you know, give up on anything. So there has to always be a third option. And I think the lesson that I learned is, you know, at 16, I got diagnosed with Erlen syndrome. And funnily enough, there's a third option. Now I can learn to read. So in my world, when the options are hustle and grind it out or quit, I'm always looking for a third option. I think that was really what I was looking for. I went, I'm not willing to accept that just because I'm quiet and reserved and an introvert, and I, I think in my head, I'm not going to be able to outsell these extroverts. I'm not going to be able to do well in sales. And then I went, well, what is it? And I think this is the real question. If I'm unwilling to accept the way it is or the way the world currently says it's going to be, I have to ask one question. If it was possible to do it differently, what would that look like? And that went, well, if it, if it was possible, it would have to be a system, something that I can rehearse, something that I can practice. So I went looking for a way to systemize it and practice it in a way that was more authentic to me as an introvert. And what was interesting is as an introvert, 
I realized that when you systemize things the right way and you just don't wing things and say whatever comes out of your mouth, you can actually be more effective. I mean, and this isn't new stuff. I mean, Brian Tracy talks about the top 10% of all sales performers you know, globally have a planned presentation. Well, if you think about who's more likely to have a planned presentation, well, that's an introvert. So the problem is that the bottom 80% that just say whatever comes out of their mouth, right, those are the people, the best ones of those are going to be extroverted. They're the ones that are going to brag about the fact that they just weren't winded. So what happens is that the planned presentation, by agreeing that that was going to be the way I was going to do things, that was how I accelerated. Now, I mean, everything that I do is about helping introverts realize that they're not second-class citizens. Their path to success is just different to that of an extrovert. But when they realize that systems are the key, and as long as you have a system that channels your introverted strengths, like active listening, your ability to empathize, all of a sudden, you can outsell, you can out-network, you can out-speak from stage. Any so-called extroverted arena, you can actually dominate in and I think it was my willingness to go what if it was going to be done in a different way if I wasn't willing to accept the grind or if I wasn't willing to just give up what would be the third path where this occurred to me yeah see and I love that so there's a there's a quote that you talk about in the book um, about uh, people aren't looking for a drill they're looking for a hole and, you know, to me, again, that's reverse engineering. So, so often, let's take healthcare at the moment, you know, so often people are chasing the pills to get their, their metrics right in the doctor's office, and they're missing the point that what they should be chasing is their own health, which is going to steer them more towards nutrition and exercise and yoga and all these things that are actually going to make them healthier. And so that's what I loved about your story is, I think sometimes we just get swept away, introvert, extrovert, whoever it is, but we get swept away by the tide of whatever's being discussed, whatever the norm is, whatever quote-unquote tradition is, as we like to say in the fire service, and actually find ourselves so far removed from the ultimate why, which is, you know, what is at the core of what we're doing? And by stopping and just like you said, if, if, you know, if there was a solution, what would it look like? Reverse engineering it, then you're able to create a brand new path to, to the most efficient um, route to that solution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so well, actually, I've extended on that saying around the, you know, do they want a drill bit or do they want a hole? I mean, if they come in and they're coming looking for a drill bit, you need to understand, of course, that what they're probably looking for is, you know, an eight inch hole, not an eight inch drill bit. But maybe it's because they want to go and build a bird cage because they're really into birds. So if you understand what the overarching goal is, is really important. And I think that when we're talking about overarching goals, the problem is these days, most people tend to inherit their goals from their mother, their father, their, I don't know, drunk roommate they had in college. They just hear these things and they're like, that's it. You know, that's what I want. And then they spend the rest of their life charging after that. And sometimes they'll get to that goal and they're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing in the world. Why did I spend my life to try and get to this? I hate where I am right now. Or other people just struggle to muster the, the, the fire in their belly to go after and get it. I mean, the fact that there are people at the moment that have countdown down timers on their phone about when they're going to retire because they're just going to grind it out horrifies me when there is such amazing ways that you can access content now and really transform your life. So, I mean, for me though, I mean, I know exactly where people are at and the difference was I wasn't willing to accept it. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of, you know, back in 2007, I won the, what's called the Melbourne Young Achiever Award, but that basically it was for the work for me creating the, the largest brokership for B2B cell phones in the country at the time. I mean, by year three alone, we turned over $4.2 million, but you know, I remember winning that award and 
And, you know, I should have gone home ecstatic. I mean, I was making, I mean, I was making more money than anyone in my family had ever made far more. You know, I remember going home to my 270 degree apartment with my multiple cars downstairs and all the fancy things that I could possibly have ever wanted, because back then I deluded myself that that meant happiness, which is not true. And I remember going home with this award and I remember just being absolutely miserable. And the reason for that is I had spent the last three years working ridiculous hours to prove to everyone else that I was worth something. It was only when I really asked myself what mattered to me that really things transformed. This, you know, there's an exercise I, I, t- I get people to uh, to do quite frequently. And actually, you know, I've got a podcast of my own called, well, I've got a podcast called The Introvert's Edge, but I have another one called The Better Business Coach Podcast. And there's an episode called Forget About Goals, Why is the Key to Success? And what I do is I get you to really come up with three business goals and three personal goals. One one that's selfish because that'll drive that'll be the one that drives you. But that's really a means to an end because what I then ask you to do is summarize each one of those goals in 250 words or less including why it's important to you. And what I find is high achievers are really good at writing goals. But when it comes to writing why it's important to them, they don't really know and they're forced to be confronted by the fact that these goals aren't really important to them. They've inherited them. Like some people say I want to make a million dollars by next year and I'm like, "Oh cool, how would you spend the million dollars?" No clue because they've never really thought of it. It's just this thing that people say is important, right? I have bought the fancy sports car and then ended up hating the car because it wasn't as comfortable as some of the cars I'd had previously. So there are all these goals that we set ourselves because other people impose that they're important and we need to feel like we're keeping up with the Joneses because in the truth is that if we're not happy doing what we do in our personal life and we're also not happy doing what we do in our career, we feel like we need to buy all these things and want all of these things to fill the soul, right? We have to have hope. But the truth is that if those aren't really aligned with what we want, we really know that internally and we won't push ourselves to go and get it, which is why we give ourselves all these excuses like, oh, yeah, no, it's not the right time or, yeah, I just don't have time to get around to those sorts of things. So I'm going to be stuck where I am for the next 10 years or you actually do get there. And then, as I said, you'll be miserable if you actually do the hustle and the hard work. So what I suggest people do is, you know, write, you know, come up with their goals and write their whys. And if they struggle with coming up with their whys, what that really means is there's a disconnect between their goals and their passion, their mission, and their drivers behind what they want to do. And one of the things that I then say is, well, go back and then re-look at your goals and look at what really is important to you. And as soon as you start to do that, what I find is, you know, all of a sudden people start to realize all of the things that really are important to them. And, you know, sometimes they're completely different goals than what they set out to eventually. But what blows me away is the opportunity that they see afterwards. Because, you know, in neuro-linguistic programming, you learn that you're presented with nearly 2 million bits of information every single second. Our brains are supercomputer, but what happens is we delete, distort, and generalize everything we see, feel, hear, and touch based on our beliefs our values, our past experiences, and a subset of that is our goals. So while I'd like to think I'm a great coach, in truth, just getting people laser focused on what they want, and more importantly, why they want it, allows them to see opportunities that are right there in front of them. And especially for introverts that are going into their own businesses, or even looking for a new career, if you can align their passion with the objective, all of a sudden, you get this unparalleled amount of energy to get stuff done towards that goal. Beautiful. I love it. I mean, that's that's the thing, finding that why. And I think so many people that stood on the diamond, whether it's in the military space or, you know, first responder space, have that same why. They they want to make a difference. But I think some of, you know, my peers, my brothers and sisters, 10, 15, 20 years on, 
feel handcuffed, feel like they're not making as much of a difference. Maybe they're not working for a great organization and they try to make a change and it's not happening. Or maybe, you know, again, they, they've done their 10 years. They feel like they're exhausted and never seeing their family. Um, but we kind of feel shackled to that pension. And, you know, we mentioned the countdown timer. That's exactly what I've seen sometimes with, with decades on that timer before they're going to be transitioning out. But what I found with this podcast that was beautiful is I was able to follow the same mission to, to help be, but be the prevention element rather than the reactive side where you have a heart attack and we jump on an emergency vehicle and come try and save your life. We try on the part where you never even gain the weight. You never even get sick. You never even end up in the rescue. But that core why is exactly the same. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting is I see a lot of people that, you know, I've worked with quite a few people that have left the military and they're now moving into civilian life. And they've made the decision that they want to start a business. And some of them want to be speakers. Some of them want to be coaches. Some just want to start businesses where they they have a, a business that revolves around them, their family, and their life, not the other way around. But they've got this general sense that they want to contribute, but they don't really know what that is. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I, I'm always letting them know that, I mean, when it comes to rapid growth, so many people get in their own way when it comes to rapid growth. But the second thing is the pain's got to be worth the gain. I mean, if you don't really know what you want to do, then sure, stay in a job and spend that time focusing on what it is that you want to do. But when you decide what it is that you want to do, then you'll have this, you know, no one will be able to compete with you as long as you have a great strategy for getting yourself to the outcome. But what I find is, you know, people that leave the military, they, you know, a lot of times they'll say, you know, I really want to, you know, start a business. I feel like I've got a great deal to offer when I, you know, as a speaker, but they have you know, a couple of friends have said that maybe they should be a speaker and they've gone, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And they do it, but they haven't really thought it through. And then all of a sudden you get them connected with the actual difference that they want to make in the world and what really means something to them. And all of a sudden it's transformative. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, one thing we haven't touched on yet, which I want to make sure we do before we uh, get to the end of the conversation is you know, self-diagnosis. So, so how does someone, um, understand, you know, what an introvert is, what an extrovert is, and, and, and kind of, uh, through self-reflection, see if they are in one of those two categories? Yeah, absolutely. And for, the people listening, I think that the psychologists have made it way too confusing. And don't get me wrong. I mean, there are lots of complexities to this. And we could talk about, you know, the difference between introversion and shyness, introversion and highly sensitive people. There's a lot of things that you could overcomplicate it with to not really know the answer that yourself. So I'm going to simplify it completely because one of the things that drives me nuts is when people say things like, oh, I used to be really introverted, but now I'm more extroverted. Or I used to be extroverted, but now I'm more introverted. Or yeah, I, I, you know, all of a sudden now I, I, I'm kind of, diff, you know, situational. The truth is, the way I see it is introversion and extroversion is really about where you draw your energy from. It really is that simple. I mean, for me, you know, I, while I, I, I hope that people are getting value out of this interview and maybe, you know, I get it all the time. A lot of people go, there's no way this guy's an introvert. Look at how much energy he is and it has and how much how articulate he is in the, in the podcast. It doesn't mean that I can't do these things. It just means like a kid that goes to Disneyland, I might be having a lot of fun and I am. I'm having an enjoyable time on this show. It just means afterwards I'm going to want to lay down, right? I'm going to crash, right? When I do back-to-back podcast interviews, at the end of that day, I just want to put on a hoodie and watch Netflix shows in a dark room. You know, the, the best example I can give you 
is when I, I, I have a conference that I put on in around America every year. It's, it's called by Small Business Festival, and it's listed by Inc. as the number three conference in America for small business. And we put on over 100 free events right across the country every year. And, well, outside this year, thanks to COVID, but normally every year that's what we do. Now, when I ran the inaugural year in Austin, we had an event. It was a three-day premium event, and Jim Cathcart, who's a personal friend of mine, he's the number one most award-winning speaker in the world. And because of our friendship, he came and spoke from our stage as the closing speaker. And he, because he was a friend of mine, he wanted to come down and support me the whole three days of that premium event conference. And so he was in and around people. You know, one of the one of the girls was missing her mother's birthday to to to, um, to be one of the um, you know to be involved in the conference and support us in, in you know during that event. He played his guitar for her. You know, I was in and around the event as well. I was up on stage. He was up on stage. Everybody was contributing. The difference was at the end of those three days, he wanted to go and experience the live music capital of the world. And as I said, I'd prefer to go home, put on a hoodie and watch Netflix. I have never in my life, you know, I, because he was my guest, I took him down to Rainy Street, had to ask a 70-year-old for permission to go home at midnight because I was just exhausted where he was charged up from being with people for three days. He wanted to go and have more of that. So, I mean, the thing that I really want people to know that are listening is if you if you charge by being by yourself or being or, or charge by being with a couple of close friends or family, you're an introvert. If you charge up by being with people, you're an extrovert. Now, COVID's been really interesting because, you know, a lot of introverts have felt like they really want to go out and speak to people because introverts still need contact with people. They just, you know, it depletes their energy. So when they're fully charged up, you'll still want to hang out with people. Extroverts say, oh, but sometimes I recharge. Like if I spend three days at a conference, I'm going to be exhausted. Maybe your cup's full and you just need some need some downtime to deplete your energy because you're maxed out at 150%. But the key is if you charge up by being by yourself, you are an introvert. If you charge up by being with others, you are an extrovert. And it means nothing. The one thing that I always try to highlight is both introverts and extroverts have their burdens to bear. You might see that a lot of extroverts struggle with things like active listening and empathy. But the difference is an HR department will notice that and send them to training. On the, the problem is that an introvert has amazing strengths in empathy and active listening but they believe that this gift of gag barrier is something that they can't cross. And my whole mission in life is to help people realize that it's an absolute fallacy. And as soon as we realize that we can systemize out our, our weaknesses and leverage with a system that leverages our strengths, we can do amazingly well in all of those activities. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was listening to the book. I did the audio book for um, The Introvert's Edge. And, um, you know, driving along 46 years old. And when you described about where you get your energy from, I was like, Oh, shit. Okay. I guess I'm an introvert. <laughs> Cause again, I'd bought into that, you know, an introvert just, you know, sits in a dark room, you know, gently cutting themselves with a razor blade. <laughs> you know what I mean? The kind of cartoonish version of that. Um, where the reality is I really enjoy, um, engaged personal conversations and lo and behold here we are i'm running a podcast now but you know that that's just it and i've never been drawn to the large rooms and if i do go to a conference i normally find a little seat in the back and just keep to myself not because i'm shy not because i don't want to interact but again as you were saying before we started recording the whole small talk thing like i don't want to talk about football scores or the kardashians i want to talk about you know, overturning the health epidemic and some of the things that we have. So again, all these descriptions, not that it was putting me in a perfect box, but drawing energy was a great analogy. 
And, you know, I want to get into what my friend Chad said in a minute because he's the one that turned me on to your book. But it's an interesting dynamic when you take a fire station full of personalities, some of whom are extroverts, some of whom are introverts, but they're forced to live together for 24 hours, which isn't a bad thing at all. But this identification of the personality type, I think, is an incredibly powerful tool so that you can understand which one you are and therefore is you know is your energy being boosted or drained in that particular environment oh you're absolutely right i mean the amount of people that have read my books that are extroverted but they wanted to understand their extrovert their introverted husband or wife and you know it's it's been really interesting to see that dynamic shift because just understanding you know what's interesting is that my wife and i are both introverted so obviously we'll we'll spend a lot of time together but we do like our own time but you know a lot of times an extrovert will be like well why do you want to be alone don't 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 you love me don't you want to spend time with me where an introvert just being understanding of that is, is really important. People knowing what their characteristics are. You know, the well, my family is a great example. So I did an, an article, well, I was interviewed for an article for the Chicago Tribune on how to survive Christmas as an introvert. And the thing was, I mean, I'm, I, you know, everybody, that when I go to a Christmas party, I make it, you know, I tell people that if I've got an early morning meeting the following day, I will say, you know, right up front that I have an early morning meeting the, the following day, which means I've got to cut out at this time because me as an introvert, if I don't get enough recharge time, then I'm not going to be at my best that afternoon. When I speak at an event, a lot of times people will ask me if I want to go out for dinner the night before because them would imagine that I am by in a town by myself and need to be entertained for the evening. And I'm like, well, I'm speaking the following morning. So, you know, for me, you know, while I appreciate you, you want to take me out for dinner, I said, the problem that I have is if I go out for dinner with you, if, you know, of course, if it's an afternoon presentation, I don't care. But if it's a morning presentation, if I go out to dinner with you, I won't be at my best. And that's what you're paying me all this money to, to be at my best for that morning. I said, plus, you know, I'll always say the value is really afterwards because, you know, if you meet me the night before, a lot of the people you invite to dinner to entertain me are going to be asking what I'm speaking about. When if we have dinner the night after or the night of the event, you can then ask me questions about the content, which will add a lot more value. I'll suggest they bring along their sponsors and that way it'll be a much higher level event, right? So just knowing your introversion is important. So, you know, with my family at Christmas, I'm always, you know, my family all knows that I'm introverted and they know I cannot handle an entire eight hours of Christmas day without a break. So they all know that I'm introverted because I'm not embarrassed by it. And that's really important for everyone listening. As you said, introversion is not, you know, acne, slitting my wrists under the, ta- um, under the bridge, hoping no one notices me. It is just where you draw your energy, right? So a lot of people will see me from stage and like, there's no way you're an introvert. And I'm like, think about what you're projecting there. You're saying that just because I'm introverted that I can't be dynamic. You're saying just because I don't have acne now that I'm no longer introverted, right? All the things that we do, and I, you know, I do it myself. I see someone that's amazing on stage and I project extroversion on them and go, oh, one day I hope to be as good as them. Yet, you know, I'm listed as one of the top 50 speakers in the world and I'm sure everyone looks at me until I say that I'm introverted on stage, which I always do, as, oh, he's just got that natural gift, right? But at Christmas, I tell all my family and there is literally a 45-minute period 
that after lunch I will just disappear off to off to a room and I will just you know look at dumb stuff on on Facebook or you know or Instagram or just you know read an article or something throw on a Netflix show or something that allows me to be separate from everyone else now I'm not the person that will go and have a nap because I just wouldn't get up from that nap but if I've got something that I can use it's really giving myself that opportunity to recharge and I think that's one of the biggest hurdles for introverts globally that I speak to it's that they're embarrassed about the fact that they're introverted. Now, I mean, there are extroverts that are embarrassed about the fact that they just can't stop talking. They know that they talk too much and there's nothing they can do about it, but they're not embarrassed really about it. They just know that that's an issue or a character flaw. Introverts are embarrassed about the fact that they're introverts, which blows me away because, I mean, you think about all the amazing, I mean, you, you talk about Oprah Winfrey, she's an introvert. You talk about Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, introverts. The... Um, Gosh, what's his name? Um, Bill Murray from um, the um, the movie oh, Groundhog Day. This really eccentric personality, an introvert. You know, Zig Ziglar, Ivan Meisner, Brian Smith, the founder of billion-dollar b- brand Ugg Boots. He's another introvert. I could go on forever. These what I call introverted titans are everywhere. The problem is we think introversion is embarrassing and we project extroversion on anyone that's successful. Absolutely. Well, Chad that I mentioned, so the backstory of him, he's been on this podcast twice now. He's a good friend of mine. But he at one point was um, battling alcoholism. He was suicidal. Um, and, and your book was absolutely one of the tools that I think, you know, made him, you know, started him back on that journey. And and, I, and I'm sure one of the errors is he probably felt like he was not a quote unquote fireman, firefighter. You know, he wasn't, you know, rowdy and um you know the 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 center of the party as it were uh, and he asked me to ask you a question he said uh at what point are we being disingenuous integrating an extrovert environment at what point are we being disingenuous integrating into an extrovert i so i so if you think about introversion and extroversion being just a place where you draw your energy there is no such thing as an introverted environment or an extroverted environment. There are just people in an environment that have strengths and weaknesses. And introverts have certain skills gaps and extroverts have certain skills gaps. I think the biggest hurdle is that extroverts, these these so-called extroverted arenas, introverts believe that they have to behave more extroverted to be successful in those environments. I mean, the you know, the simple act of just informing people that you're introverted is powerful. I mean, I, I know there's a the founder of WP Engine, which is like one of the largest hosting um, platforms in the world uh, for WordPress. The founder is Jason Cohen, by the way, another introvert. And when I interviewed him on my Introverts Edge podcast, I, you know, he talked about how powerful being an introvert was because he would be in a, in a board meeting and everyone in his board would know that he was an introvert. When he'd go to another meeting, he would mention that he was an introvert and he'd say, so don't, you know, please don't mind if I don't keep eye contact with you. It's just for me being in the meetings hard enough. And, you know, so if I'm not keeping eye contact, you know, I apologize. But what that meant is all of the extroverts in the room defends Jason. So whenever he speaks, everybody says, quiet down, Jason speaking. And he said, it's such a superpower because everyone else is yelling at each other. But whenever I speak, everyone goes quiet. 
when I let people know that I'm an introvert in a meeting, firstly, when I'm at a networking event, half of the people at the networking event are going to be likely introverts. So a lot of the time when I'll say I'm introverted, they'll go, oh, me too. And that creates a kinship between the two of us, right? It's us against the world. So it's powerful. But also when, you know, I've, I've been at events where, you know, I'll talk about myself as an introvert and some extrovert will hear me say that. And then from that point onwards, as soon as I start to speak out, they're like, shh, listen to Matt. It's powerful. Now, when you're in a, you know, in a firehouse and there's people everywhere, right, one of the things that introverts find I, I, you know, all the time is that, you know, they, they get tired of being around and being in contact with people all the time. And they can get a little snippy because, you know, if, you, if you're exhausted, which people are, can be, you know, if you have been around people for a long period of time, it can get exhausting, then you're going to get a little bit snippy. So I, you know, all of my team know that I'm introverted and that's important, right? So don't be uncomfortable sharing that, right? So my team all know that I'm introverted. And if I've got to go speak at an event, they defend me to make sure that they're controlling my energy going in. Now, if they know I've got a coaching session coming up, you know, for half an hour before that, nobody will give me any information that could potentially ruin my mindset as I'm preparing to be ready for a coaching client, right? By just people knowing is empowering. I mean, if you're sitting around 15 people, they're always going to wonder why you, why maybe you just don't like them and they take offense with it. If you just walk away to have your own space for 20 minutes, they're like, we're in the middle of a great conversation. What are you, that person's weird. But if you, if they know, they're like, oh, he's just having his introvert recharge moment. He'll come back and he'll be, he'll be okay, right? So, or she'll be okay. So you just need to make sure that people know about it. There's no such thing as being inauthentic in an extroverted arena because the thing that I look at, and, 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 and I know that, you know, he's just read my book. So, you know, and I love the fact that he, he got so much value out of my book. The thing is that sales systemization and in my new book, The Introvert's Edge to Networking, networking systemization is not about becoming more extroverted. It's also not about becoming a different person or trying to be someone that you're not. It's about planning to be the best version of yourself, right? So when I'm at a sales pitch or you in getting you involved in a sales process, and I'm talking to someone, I'm not being disingenuous at all. I'm just being the best version of me. I tell the same story every time because I know it works. I ask the same questions every time because I know it works. When I'm in a networking event, I usually only go to networking events where my niche is, which means my stories all resonate with them, which means the conversations we have are relatively the same. You know, what was interesting, and you know, this is actually one of the biggest drivers for why I wrote The Introvert's Edge to Networking, was my book, the first one on, on sales, a guy called um, Craig Turner in Buffalo, New York City, picked up a copy of my book, took it home and left it on his coffee table. And his son was always really into business books. He was super introverted. I'm talking the guy with the hoodie over his head, always looking at his shoes, never making eye contact, never talking to people. And he picked up my book and he read it cover to cover. This is a book on sales. Like what does a, a kid in his teens need with a book on sales? And he decided that if you could systemize something with as many moving parts as selling, he could systemize the process of making friends. Now, again, he didn't make himself out to be someone he's not. He just embraced the fact of perfecting the version of himself, making it very clear who he was, how to articulate the things he was interested in, telling stories from the past 
in a way that he'd well rehearse them and practice them so that he could have those initial dialogues. And now, I mean, now he's you know actually one of the popular kids. The hoodie's off. You know, he's there's now a girl in the picture. I believe now he's the the the, the it's the girlfriend, and his life is very very different. All by making sure that he just provided the most authentic version of himself. The second thing I will tell you is that introverts, while they struggle with making initial relationships, you know, it's it's proven that extroverts are much better at making those initial contacts than introverts, but they struggle to make deeper relationships. Introverts, on the other hand, actually are well known that they have less relationships, but they have much deeper and stronger relationships with the people that they know, which means that the average introvert, if they can over if they can overcome the initial dialogue, they can have lots of incredibly deep relationships and that's what i love seeing you know what i you know what i noticed with joel craig's son is that he now has very deep relationships with these popular kids but he used the process of systemizing making friends to get that initial dialogue to get them to give them the time of day but now his ability to listen to empathize to understand and to truly care about the people that he has relationships with gives him advantage over everybody else that they that they're friends with yeah and it's such a powerful um not concept you know philosophy that that you've you've underlined with with your work and you know obviously there's an application for sales an application for marketing and networking but when i was reading it as a responder i was looking at it there's an application for a bedside manner for for um gaining the trust of a patient or you know as i as i mentioned one example talking someone off a bridge de-escalating in a violent situation um, and, you know, the storytelling element is, is so powerful. And obviously I've been exposed to it now through this and these deep, deep relationships through these interviews and, and the incredible stories, the incredible trust that some of these men and women have in me to listen and, and to, to, you know, to, to publish their stories, if you were. So tell me about the storytelling element. Um, because I think that's so powerful. And sometimes we do get a little facty, you know, as, as we get better, as we get, um, a little uh, compassion fatigue in some of our professions. We 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 negate that human element, that trust gaining element of storytelling. Well, absolutely, and I think especially in a lot of these highly complex careers, like if you're talking about somebody that's in emergency response from medical, a lot of times they're used to explaining uh, explaining diagnoses and complex things. And you got to remember that the people you're speaking to, like if you're trying to talk someone off, um, you know, off a ledge. These people are not thinking in a logical place. So you, I'm sure you're going through your again. Of course, I don't have training on how to get somebody off the off 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 um, off a ledge. But I'm assuming you're going to remind them of their family and the people that will care about you know them being gone and reminding them of you know the the, you know, the people that they love, the people they care about, and connecting them with those things. But the thing you've got to realize is stories are amazing at doing that. Firstly. When you meet someone for the first time, if you introduce, so as an introvert, I mean, I always struggle. Like in my first book, I talk about, you know, how I had preset things to talk about in the initial rapport phase. Like people would offer me a coffee and I'm like, oh, no, I've actually given up coffee because, you know, I found that it had huge you know effects on my mood. So because of that, now I drink mate tea, which is actually similar. I'm not sure if you heard of it from South America, but it now, you know, really, I get this great level of energy all day without the ups and downs. And then, of course, that fosters a whole diet dialogue around whether they could give up coffee or not because they truly love coffee and you know it again creates this conversation that I've told a thousand times which means I can control it but what happens is eventually you need to create you need a way of taking people from this 
you know, and I think this is the reason why people hate networking events, right? They all feel like such a surface level, either transactional or aimless, where they never foster these really rich relationships. And, you know, in all of these, you know, whether it's sales, whether you're applying it to sales, whether you're applying it to networking, whether you're applying it to emergency response, in or when you're applying it to just getting a new job in an interview, right? The thing is that stories have a, a, quite a few scientific elements that make it almost a superpower in any in any application. For instance, stories actually short circuit the logical mind and speak directly to the emotional mind. Now, if you think about somebody that's going through a crisis, they're not thinking logically, they're thinking emotionally. So because of that, you're communicating in the mindset that they're actually in, which is firstly, really, really powerful. The second thing, if you're in sales or networking or something like that, you've got to remember that the logical part of the brain is thinking that'll work for me, that won't work for me. You know, how long have you taken on the phone? That's it. Objection. Let's just hang up. Right. That's the logical brain. The emotional brain just goes story time and it just listens. The second thing is people remember up to 22 times more information when embedded into a story. Right. So because of that, they're more likely to remember all of the things that you told them. But the third one, and this is super important, is when you tell a story, it activates the reticular activating system of the teller's brain and the receiver of the story's brain. And it actually causes your brains to synchronize. Now, for me, I mean, this is hugely powerful when I speak from stage, because when I get up on stage, I am terrified. Like, I, you know, I've had people that have seen me, like, you know, I'm, I'm a CSP, which is the highest designation you can get as a speaker. And they know that I've won all these speaking awards. Yet when they hire me, the 10 minutes before I go up on stage, I'm pacing like a crazy person. And so because of that, I now take myself away and I'll let the, you know, the organizer know that don't worry, I'll be back, but I have to go and do my introverted 10 minutes, get my head in the right spot, because otherwise people come up and talk to me. And as soon as I get on the stage, I'll have this rehearsed line, something like, what a wonderful introduction for somebody from all the way on the other side of the world. How will I live up to such a wonderful introduction? I know, let me tell you about Wendy. And then I get straight into a story. And as soon as I start to tell that story, I notice all of the people in the audience relax and they're entranced. And I feel at ease and they feel at ease and it's super powerful. Now, the problem is in a business setting, most people think about stories, customer wanted this, so we gave it to them, or here were the logical facts of that story. What I talk about is stories more about, as I said, how you met your partner. So they become these more theatrical masterpieces. Now, if you have to explain a diagnosis to someone, think about it. You can tell them all the, the factual data about what they're experiencing and what they're going to be going through and you know, just hold on or whatever you've got to explain to them. Or you can make it very clear that you've dealt with people that are in their same situation and you got them to a successful outcome, that they got through it and so can they. And the moral of that story is super powerful. I mean, the, the concept around storytelling, a lot of parents are always telling their kids not to do things and telling their kids what they should do. But they don't tell enough stories about how when they were young, they made those same mistakes. And that's and here's how they learned from those and that because of the trouble that they got into. Right. So stories are a hugely powerful thing that you can use in every element and it, it, they have a huge effect, but for an introvert specifically, because an introvert can use story to synchronize the brain and this creates artificial rapport that now with an introvert's ability to take surface level rapport into deep rapport, again, they have a superpower. Yeah. And I love that. And I've seen that, you know, often in, in, you know, the patients that I've had that have gone well, like just that story, just that, you know, moment, that couple of sentences that, that can create that bridge between you and that person. 
you're able to talk them off, you know, whether it's something mild like, you know, hyperventilation or whether it is, you know, a violent patient that you're bringing down to, you know, to a normal rate. And, and if you're in law enforcement, that could be a difference between killing someone, you know, and getting them safely into handcuffs. Well, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to tell them a two or three minute story. Well, they're wrong. I mean, I worked in a cold calling scenario where people were getting a C-level executive to give them a roughly eight seconds before they hung up the phone. We transition logical counters to objections to a story, and the average C-level executive was giving the person just over two and a half minutes before their logical brain switched back on. Think about how much time that gives you if you've got somebody that is on a ledge and thinking about you know, doing something horrible. Instead of engaging them with your logical facts and the reasons for why they should, instead telling them a story of somebody else that thought their life didn't matter and how, you know, you were able to talk them off the ledge and how now they have a much more meaningful and happy life and they couldn't have imagined that they were ever in that place. So while it looks like you're in a dark spot now, I want to tell you that sometimes the darkest periods are before, you know, before you see the light, just something with a moral. And again, I always talk about stories with a four part. And the last part is always the moral where you bring home the moral in a way that it applies directly to them in their situation. I love it. Beautiful. Well, um, just one more kind of topic before we transition to some closing questions. Um, I, again, I found this medium to be incredibly powerful. You know, I mean, you've got the audio books and you've got, you know, the, the films and YouTube, but the, the conversation, I listen to a lot of other people's podcasts too, but I find it so powerful to the point where I've done one interview, you know, uh, with some people and become close friends, like almost immediately after, like you said, that, that, that engagement that you get, what was your personal experience when you started hosting a podcast? You know, so firstly, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Like a lot of times when people go to networking events, they feel like it's important that they lead the conversation that they're talking about themselves. And that doesn't work. Right. The whole goal is to be interested, interested, not interesting. Now, of course, you need to be interesting as well. But of course, you want to start by being interested in them. I think the reason why podcast works so well as a, as a platform is it says, I'm really interested in what you have to say. And it forces sometimes even the most extroverted person that wouldn't give somebody the time of day to say something about themselves to ask questions and generally listen and genuinely listen because there's an audience that's going to be listening to this that are there for them, not for the person. You know, I actually saw a, um, a an interview um, with Gary V where he was interviewing somebody else for his show. And every time the person tried to answer, he would then interrupt or have another idea. And all the comments below it were, mate, give the guy a chance to speak. The people that interview well they know that it's not about them. They understand their job is to listen and empathize. I mean, podcast is hugely powerful for, for introverts to foster relationships because, of course, they can do pre-planning before they even go on to understand. And, you know, with my podcast, The Introvert's Edge, you know, I, you know, I will have a pre-call because my, my interviews are really detailed. You know, I, I, I really want to understand their personal introverted journey and the struggles they had growing up and the systems that they learned to succeed as an introvert to become an introverted titan. And I mean, I'm interviewing, you know, amazing individuals like Ivan Meisner and, you know, Tom Ziegler and, you know, Neil Patel, these amazingly high level people around, you know, how they have leveraged their introversion as a strength. But the ability to ask great questions and hear them out, by the time they've shared all of this about themselves, the person that you're talking to feels so indebted to you because you've literally they've shared their entire life's journey. And I can imagine, especially with your 90-minute show kind of length, 
you probably know more about them and well actually your their audience your audience knows more about them than a lot of their friends know about them and because of that they feel like they've got a genuine connection so i think i mean podcast is a wonderful media uh, medium to to foster strong relationships and it's surprisingly easy to get high level guests on your show i mean a lot of people say oh you know i just don't have a really big rolodex of of people, I wish I knew this person. I wish I knew this person. Well, usually, you know, reaching out to those people and asking them to be on a podcast actually isn't that hard. And then when you do reach out and ask them to be on a podcast, if they say, you know, just you know, generally infrequently does somebody say no, they'll say just not right now. You know, I know that, you know, with Neil Patel, I followed up three times for him to be on my show. And the third time it was yes. A lot of these people are like, well, I just don't want to be on a show where people aren't committed or where people don't see me as a as a high level guest. So with just a little bit of follow up, there really isn't anyone that's outside your reach. I mean, you think about me. I'm I'm this guy that came from, a, you know, like not a country town, but I was 50 minute drive with no traffic out of Melbourne CBD, the major city district in where I grew up. And now, I mean, some of my friends are like people like Ivan Meisner and, you know, Michael Michael Gerber, these people that my parents used to talk about around the dinner table as gods of business. And I mean, I've got all their cell phone numbers. I've, you know, I, you know, I remember being at Ivan Meisner's home and, you know, him pulling out a bowl of wine and us just sitting there and telling stories. And that all came from him and I being on a podcast interview together. Beautiful. That was a nice little kind of full circle to to your dinner table as a child too. That's a beautiful ending. Well, transferring to some closing questions. So first, tell the people about the books and where they can find them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the the big things that I'll tell a lot of people that are listening is, you know, if if you don't want to learn how to sell, if you don't want to learn how to network, which personally, I think everyone needs to know how to network, because eventually, you're always going to have to apply for a job. And in truth, even if you're pushing yourself for you know, pushing to get a promotion, that's a sales job, you're just telling stories to the your, your manager to try or your potential employer to get you into uh, the job that you truly want. But the first chapters of my book, are, are, you know, for me, you know, I founded National Introverts Week in, in America because I got tired of people talking about introversion as a disability, as a, you know, poor you, you're an introvert. Let me show you how to survive in an extroverted world. And I wanted to say, no, you're an introvert, which means you have a superpower. Let me show you how to leverage your strengths to dominate in all so-called extroverted arenas. And because I'm so passionate about that the first chapters of both of my books really help you overcome so the first chapter on sale uh, the first chapter in my sales book really helps you really get past your beliefs that sales isn't possible for you and then I outline a seven-step process that really if you just grab those seven steps look at what you currently say and put it into that you'll realize that there's a bunch of things that don't fit you shouldn't be saying that to clients right throw that out then you'll realize there's a bunch of things out of order. So you'll fix that order. And then you'll realize there's some gaping holes and you'll fill in those gaps. And I always tell people, if they do nothing more than that, they'll double their sales in the next 60 days and know that sales is possible for them. Then you can access that first chapter of that book at theintrovertsedge.com. And then my second book, I do the exact same thing. I help you overcome your, your belief that as an introvert, you can't succeed at networking and help you realize 
the why with the right system and process, you'll actually beat your extroverted counterparts hands down. And it doesn't mean, like the question you asked me earlier, it doesn't mean that you're being inauthentic. It means that you're just learning how to present the best authentic version of yourself. And that's what the first chapter will do. It'll help you overcome that belief that you can't network successfully as an introvert. And then I'll outline a full process for you. And the key here is what I find is a lot of people will read those first two chapters, the, the chapter of both of those books, or either of those books, I should say. And then they'll realize that the applicability goes to every so-called extroverted arena. So the second book, you can download the first chapter at the introvertsedge.com forward slash networking. And as I said, both of those chapters are completely free. My publisher hates me when I say this. You don't need to buy my books. Those first chapters will help you immensely in overcoming the adversities, uh, well, your perceived adversities around being an introvert and help you realize that there is an actionable strategy that you can use to succeed in networking and sales. And as Joel did, realizing from my first book in making friends or whatever you choose to do with it. Yeah, no, and I recommend listening to the book or actually buying the whole book. And the application you said about promotion, that's one thing. But also, there's a lot of, you know, hard charging, passionate men and women in their, you know, tactical fields that are trying to affect change, that are trying to bring, you know, more training, uh, better equipment, whatever it is. And one application that I identified for, you know, the book was just that. Like, you know, who's the gatekeeper? You know, are you going to the wrong chief in your organization? Are you presenting it wrong? Are they not connecting it because you're not telling a story? and getting them emotionally involved with this type of training, this type of staffing, whatever it is. So yeah, I mean, there were so many parallels with our, our professions as well. So I highly recommend it. I appreciate that. And what was what was interesting, you know, when I talk about storytelling at big corporations, there's, you know, there's always all these other people outside the sales team that are in there. And so now I do storytelling organizational wide as a, as a session for people. And what's interesting is, you know, in my last, one of my last events before the world went crazy and they closed down live events, is I was actually doing an event for a company called Midco. And Midco's Middle American Telecommunications Company. It's a big, big telecommunications company in the US. And one of the people that was head of finance came up to me afterwards and he said, the presentation was mind-blowing for me because I'm always going into meetings and I'm talking about KPIs and statistics. And nobody seems to understand why I'm, you know, they just feel like I'm trying to make their life harder and hold them accountable, almost like a bully. He said, now that I've seen storytelling, I could go in and tell a story about somebody in the customer service center that I saw that was so proud of the fact that they were doing these things for their customers or somebody that we knew that, you know, is one of our customers that we were letting down because of A, B and C. And I realized that it was my mission to really help them, you know, over as an, help them through our organization, make sure no one else like them had those hardships, which is why I've created these KPIs. I mean, when you're trying to get an agenda and trying to get stakeholders invested, especially if you need them to echo that same message to other stakeholders, story is critical for that. It can be you know, the story around why you're doing this in the first place and bring it down to little Johnny that you saw and you never want another person to be like little Johnny ever in the world. Or the amount of a lot of people get so emotional about overtime and you know so emotional about why they need these sorts of in extra allowance, but they talk about what I want, what I need, what should be right, as opposed to let me give you an example and tell a story and then say at the end, don't you feel that somebody that goes through something like that deserves A, B, and C? So storytelling especially has huge amounts of applicability, but at the end of the day, if you're telling the wrong person, there's no point. So you know, especially you know in a book on networking, I really 
talk about knowing who's in the room and knowing who you're speaking to and realizing that you don't just go to networking rooms to get customers. You want to get momentum partners, people that believe in you and you believe in them and you help each other get promoted. You help each other get introduced to people and then champions, the people that endorse your work. So many people think networking is just about getting prospects and clients, and that's absolutely not. As a matter of fact, you should never sell in a networking room. But this applicability applies organization-wide. If you're speaking to the wrong person or you're speaking to the right person about the wrong thing, then it doesn't matter how good a position you make, you've made the wrong point or you've made it to the wrong person. Absolutely. No, and it's so many parallels, like I said. So thank you for that. I've got one more closing question before you, before we make sure everyone knows where to find you online. Is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? You know, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think there are, there are a lot of great people that I think could be on this show because, you know, I, I think what, what's interesting is I think a lot of first responders, they suffer from the same problems. I mean, you know, I know career professionals that feel stuck in their jobs and are unmotivated to go and start their own businesses or their own careers or just go and, you know, chase a different career. Um, so I think that, it, you know, it, it, it's always helpful to have external from your industry perspectives. You know, I think, you know, somebody like Tim Ferriss would be um, really great to really help people realize that they can do a huge amount in small amounts of time. Uh, I think Brian Smith, the founder of Ugg Boots, would be a, a wonderful fit for your show because, I mean, this is a guy that was an accountant that ended up, you know, selling door to door, you know, Ugg, you know sheepskin boots you know, that then build out that billion dollar brand. I think that would be hugely powerful. Um, and then I think there, uh, there's another person, Jennifer Conweiler, who talks about leadership as an introvert. And I think she'd be a great guest for you as well. Conweiler, brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah, Tim Ferriss is someone I'd love to get on. I've, I've got to keep pursuing, you know, outlets or possible connections but just because his, his personal uh, mental health story is very powerful too. And his... his uh, um, research into psychedelics you know i mean there's there's so many elements to his story outside again the entrepreneurial you know business side that are so pertinent i think you'd be a, a great conversation as with the other two so thank you so much absolutely and you know on that note one of the other people that i might recommend is michael gerber michael gerber's got an interesting story of i mean he wrote the e-myth which is probably one of the most successful business books of all time and then through a divorce, you know, he lost, he lost everything and he had to start again. Really, he should have been retired at that point, you know, and he had to start completely from scratch. So a lot of these people that are listening, they're like, oh, my gosh, I've got 20 years to go. I'm on my countdown timer. But, I, I, I you know, I, it's too late for me. Right. It's just not true. I mean, I, you know, there are people that make their million. I mean, I've got one client that literally she was in her 60s. She'd almost given up on her business and they weren't making any money. You know, a year later, she's won multiple small business awards and she's just amazingly successful and loves what she does. And, you know, she says it just proves that, you know, there's never, never, it's never too late to pursue your dreams. So I think it's so important that, you know, you have guests on here that help people realize that if what they're doing, they love, if you love being a first responder, if you love doing what you do, absolutely learn from guests that help you be better at that. And, you know, external guests can be wonderful at that, but also embrace external guests to help embolden you to do what you love and follow your dreams. Because it doesn't matter if you're 65, you've got a lifetime of experience that you can package and help other people not make the same mistakes or to do something that's aligned with your dream. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm sure people are absolutely fascinated. So where are the best places online to find you and reach out to you? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously you can type my name in online and I pretty much come up for the first 10 pages, but you're welcome, you know, to connect with me on social media, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just type in my name, you'll find me pretty easily. And I put a ton of free content, ton of videos out to really help people, you know, really overcome their adversities and believe in themselves as introverts and see what their introversion as a strength. And then obviously there's a lot of small business content there as well. So if, if people are looking for a way that they can create a rapid growth business, even even as a parallel to what they're doing until they're starting to earn enough to step out, there's some great stuff there for you as well. Uh, also, you know, feel free to check out my Introverts Edge podcast. As, as I said, I go through and I interview a lot of introverted titans. Um, and also, I, I mentioned the other podcast, The Better Business Coach. You know, check out episode 17, Forget About Goals, Why is the Key to Success? I think that'd be, you know, really helpful to people. But, you know, for the people listening, if my books are helpful, you know, check out the introvertsedge.com and the introvertsedge.com forward slash networking. If, if it was me, that's where I would start and then I'd work through the rest of the stuff. Beautiful. Well, Matthew, I just want to say thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time. Obviously, you know, as you said, when you Google your name, there's, there's a reason why your name comes up over and over again. You're highly respected in your field. So I really, really appreciate you being so generous today. Look, it was my pleasure. And, you know, uh, what the people listening do is really important work. So I was, I was honored and, and thank you for having me on to, to do my part to support those that support so many. 